I told you about when I went to the Hanoi Hilton, though, right? Speaking of dark tourism. Yeah. Yes, you did. That would right. be dark tourism right yeah. there. I think I don't think that's dark. <laughs> they shouldn't have been there. Well, yeah, but it's also... That space was also used to torture Vietnamese people when the French had yeah, occupied yeah. the country. Yes. So that's, that's like part of the oddity of touring that space because half of it is just like look at the draconian practices of the french look at how the vietnamese were treated and then the other half it's like below that sign is and look how well look at how the Viet Cong kept it going baby yeah where yeah where did they learn all their tricks right you right know? i'm just yeah. trying to see fassbender's director chair also dark tourism yeah that's definitely <laughs> dark tourism. yeah that's I as mean, dark as it gets the policeman isn't there to create disorder the policeman is there to preserve disorder gentlemen get the thing straight once and for all we clear the streets along this route deploy our men and create an impassable barrier a gauntlet if you will he won't have a chance i challenge you to a duel It's hot out there. Let's, we don't walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders, and I'm here today with... Eric Marsh. And... Andrew Stasiulis. The Gauntlet is a weekly double-feature podcast in which one of the hosts is tasked with selecting a topic for the week, and then that topic is a challenge to the other two hosts to program a double feature of films in response to that topic, bucking up against that topic, or just maybe subverting it in an, an interesting way. And this week it was my turn to to pick the topic, and I wanted to explore something that I feel maybe is a bit overdue on the gauntlet, and it's a type of cinema that I'm extremely passionate about and a type of cinema that I just I adore and find fascinating and to me it feels like the maximum potential of what films can do sometimes and that is the the hybrid documentary and it's an extremely slippery and loose topic but basically I was asking my two compatriots here to find me films where fiction and reality are blended whether that involves real people playing fictionalized versions of themselves or taking on the role of actors or even vice versa, having performers interacting with reality. Um, and then obviously reality becomes in big quotation marks as is uh, very heavily featured in both of the films that we, that we have today. And there's uh, my cat's scratching something. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Go off, Panama. You have my blessing. <laughs> yes, yes. She's very hungry, so I think that's why she's getting a little antsy. Um, so there's a long tradition of this type of cinema. I mean, it goes all the way back, of course, to you could say something like Nanak of the North, like Flaherty, where he's trying to make a documentary, but he's trying to also construct reality as to fit his narrative and his own dramatic propulsion. And then this has been something that's found its way weaseling into many documentaries over the years and many fiction narrative films. So it's sort of an all-encompassing thing, and it's one that really 
makes my brain fire off in all these different directions. And so naturally, the films that both of you brought really stoked that fire. We have got some some real galaxy brain things going on in, in both of the films. I'm very excited to talk about them. Um, so why don't we get started as we typically do? Marsh, tell us about the earlier of the two films. Well, my line of thinking here was I wanted to I wanted to go back in time a little bit. I know uh, these these notions of, of hybridization, reality and fiction is, has been a hot topic in the last decade or so. But I wanted to go even further back because this, of course, as you pointed out, Ryan, is a, a sort of strain of filmmaking that uh, goes back to, to the beginning of film, you know, and. Personally, you guys know me, I'm a, I'm a sucker for the American independent cinema. So I wanted to go uh, back to uh, that sort of era, the post-war era, when documentary really started to, to sort of thrive and change and do all kinds of crazy stuff. And I went back to the 1950s because I was thinking about a film that I really love, On the Bowery from 1956 by Lionel Rogeson. And that's a film that, you know, it just follows these like drunks on Skid Row and it has scripted scenes and some sort of dramatic elements to it. But it is, uh, yeah, this kind of Flaherty style um, documentary uh, exploration with these fictional elements. And it's a film that always struck me. And I realized I'd never watched anything else that the director had done. So I was looking around uh, his filmography and uh, saw a film that I've been meaning to see for a, a long time. And that is Come Back Africa from 1959. And like I said, this is directed and co-written by Lionel Rogeson. And to explain all this, we got to go to Marsh's History Corner just for a little bit here. Because uh, Rogeson is a, is a kind of, you know, not well-known, I would say, uh, person, you know, today. But he was a very crucial figure in American cinema for a variety of reasons. He was specifically, too, inspired by Flaherty to pick up a camera, and he was the uh, son of a wealthy uh, Philadelphia businessman, a, a Russian immigrant who'd come here with no money and become a textile millionaire. So young Lionel uh, had a very good education, but he dropped out of college to join the Navy and enter World War II. There he was horrified by what he saw, fascism and racism and all that that implied, and it gave him this sort of social commitment that he would carry with him throughout the rest of his life. And so he was, he was working at the textile factory, dad's business, when he decided to learn how to shoot on a 16-millimeter Bolex, and he went down to uh, the Bowery and started making his first movie, and that was like the beginning of his journey as a filmmaker. Uh, and he would follow that film up, of course, with Come Back Africa, a film that is set in uh, South Africa and dealing with the apartheid regime, which I don't have to tell our audience was a very daring thing to do in the 1950s, obviously. And the whole film was shot sort of undercover. They lied to the authorities. They pretended they were making a musical documentary or a tourist film. Uh, meanwhile, 
Rogerson was collaborating with young South Africans on the writing of the script, and uh, in particular, a group uh, involved with Drum Magazine, which was an anti-apartheid magazine. And so, yeah, the film is is uh, this hybrid object where real people are basically playing themselves. Even though there was a script and there are scripted scenes, there's also elements of city symphony and documentary and just all these things sort of swirling around. And he had a lot of problems distributing the film for a variety of reasons, mainly uh, political, but also financial. Uh, and this led Rogerson to buy and, and open the Bleecker Street Cinema in New York City as a place for films like this, because there were not a lot of places for new films to be shown that were low budget and that were daring, right? And so Bleecker Street became a very famous sort of clearinghouse for uh, art house films of the day. And in a very kind of poetic connection between these two films, Godard's films would play at Bleecker Street. And I actually have a, a, a funny little story I wanted to share as a way to connect the films before we kick it over to Andy. But at some point in Godard's career, he got a... Uh, an award from like the New York critic circle and he refused it. And he said, uh, give it to the bleaker. Hey. So Godard himself was a fan uh, of the theater and of the programming that Rogerson did. It was the first theater to show Scorpio rising and portrait of Jason. And so Rogerson has this very like outsized influence, not just as a filmmaker, uh, but as a sort of theater operator and programmer. Um, so yeah, we'll, we'll get into all that, but I wanted to, you know, get all that out there on the table and we can get into the specifics of, of comeback Africa uh, when we, when we get there. Excellent. Thank you. Well, it's nice to know that Godard loved the cinema and, and found truth in their programming, because I, I should say that that is sort of the, uh, you know, ultimate question that these types of films engage with, the sort of truth of images, even when there is performance there. Where do we find the reality in a docufiction or a hybrid documentary? And so... While, Marsh, your film is sort of implicitly engaging with this thesis through the way it's directing reality and real people, conversely, Andy, the film you picked is very explicitly engaging with the truth of images, and it also happens to be from the Gauntlet's favorite year, if you go by our records, the greatest year in the history of cinema, 1974. So tell us a little bit about the film you picked. Well, um, to, to, to just back up for a second, uh, when... You picked the the topic, you know, and I think you've explained in your intro uh, beautifully again for our listeners why. When you said hybrid, you know, my mind immediately went to a, a great essay by Alain Badiou in which he sort of defines cinema as philosophical experimentation. And there's a few really interesting lines from it that immediately... Uh, started, you know, rumbling up inside my my brain again, and, and you know, one of the things that that he says is particularly wonderful about cinema is the way that it is as an art form constantly proposing new syntheses, you know, and that's one of the ways he he sort of defines the 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 
the constant flow of creativity in this art form. And there's another thing that he particularly highlights about cinema, and it's what he calls the paradox of the cinema. For Badiou, he says that cinema is total artifice and total reality mm. combined. You know, and so immediately, of course, you know, that's where my brain went, you know, to this place of, of the totally artificial and the totally real. And that is what ultimately pushed me to the director and film that I chose. And we buried the lead a little bit here, but that's, you know, one of, I think, the masters of uh, playing with that, playing right on that knife edge between the totally artificial and the totally real, embracing both sides equally, Jean-Luc Godard. Uh, and the film that I chose, I mean, certainly there's, there's plenty <laughs> in his entire filmography, I think, that, that embrace this, this idea and, and, you know, uh, your topic uh, quite marvelously. But I chose one that I think holds a very interesting uh, place in his filmography because it represents a sort of turning point in his life, in his career, in his views on all those things that you have already expressed and introduced. Truth, fiction, the, the, the real, the false, cinema as life, cinema as death, cinema as lies. Uh, and that film is 1974's Ici et Ailleurs, or in English, Here and elsewhere. So we should point out, you know, for those who haven't seen the film and, and are unfamiliar with it, it, it has a very interesting production and post-production history that I think can lead to some confusion about what this film is, when this film was made, and when it ultimately was released. The project actually began in 1970 uh, when Godard was collaborating with Jean-Pierre Gorin, uh, as a part of the Ziga Vertov group. Uh, this was in their, their extremely militant Maoist years, uh, the, the years when Ghadar went, went, you know, full radical, uh, and, and uh, they were ultimately commissioned to go to Palestine in 1970 and make a documentary about the Palestinian revolution, the Palestinian uprising that was taking place in the Middle East. That project was ultimately sort of abandoned through a, a set of, you know, complicated circumstances that might not be worth getting into at this particular moment. But then this footage sort of sat for years as Godard went through a lot of cataclysmic uh, upheaval in his life, both professionally and personally. Then... After meeting the person who would become his life partner in the early 70s, Anne-Marie Mieville, they, they sort of resurrected this 
seemingly dead project from the the by now disbanded Ziga Vertov group and tried to create a reflection on that, a reflection on the experience of making that film uh, and where they are now, uh, where France is four years later, where the Palestinians are four years later, what happened in that span from here to there, from here and elsewhere, then and now. Uh, and and though the film was, was sort of completed in 74, I don't think it was widely made available until 1975 and 76. So it does lead to a little bit of confusion as to like what this thing is, when it was made, and who made it. Because even though as I might have mentioned earlier, it's it's largely credited to Godard. The film does share multiple directing credits uh, with Godard, Gorin, and Mieville, even though by this point, when the film was completed, ultimately, Gorin was nowhere to be found. Boxed out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's a fascinating film because... You know, this this film does represent the sort of like end of one period of Godard's uh, work as a filmmaker and and the beginning of of this this new phase. Uh, he's he's very, very, um, very prolific collaborations with Anne Marie Mieville. And so much of her hand is is really guiding the project, and I think guiding Godard. For a, my own little history corner, you know, I, I often think that that Mieville came to Godard at this point in his life, and, and really ultimately like saved him. Godard was was uh, he had he had had a terrible accident in the early seventies, a motorcycle accident. He spent months in traction, nearly died from that. Was very depressed about the sort of end of the revolution that that he and so many others uh, saw so much hope for in the late 60s. Uh, it, it, it really bummed Godard to, to, to sort of see the Ziga Vertov group kind of become what it became. And he was very depressed. Uh, some say he attempted suicide twice. And then Mieville comes along and, and really sort of resurrects him. And, and, and I think helps him turn this page and, and start to kind of work through all of the, the, the emotions and the sadness and the hopelessness that he was feeling and, and to, to create something out of that, to be once again a, a, a filmmaker. And, and really, that's what this film is. It's, it's a movie about making movies. And, and it has documentary footage from 1970, uh, footage which we will see in the film may or may not be staged <laughs> as well. Uh, and, and then it also has scenes in, in contemporary France in 74 that are, you know, very stylized Godard sort of signature modernism if you will uh sketch comedy sketch yeah. comedy it's a great it's a great it's a great way of putting it but you know i guess to 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 not get too heavy into it because it's it's a short film i mean relatively speaking it's it's only about 55 minutes uh, but i think i even said to both of you though it is short in length it is long in ideas long in its concepts so, so to really just sort of put a cap on, on, again, why I think this film was, for me, such a perfect choice, and Godard such a perfect director to, to meet this topic, um, Godard once said 
that for him, cinema is the process of describing mutations. And I think that that feeds so well into this idea of hybrid cinema and as Bud, you put it, you know, constantly proposing new syntheses because this film is quite a mutant from one of the freakiest mutants in the history of cinema. So very excited to, to dive into this film with both of you. ECA here and elsewhere. Thank you. Thank you both. I was quite taken by both films. Uh, I had not seen either of them before, and I watched the Godard film first and found it to be somewhat of a revelation. I had seen some of the Vertov group films and found them really perplexing in the sense of how I was supposed to engage with it as a viewer. I found them, you know, fascinating and somewhat fun, but I was, this film really grabbed hold of me. And I think it's because it's probably worth pointing out that as chaotic and wild as it is chock full of ideas, it does feel significantly more streamlined than those other films do. To me, it feels like it actually has a clear thesis that it is trying to build and develop throughout. Partially, this may be because I did, like Godard, sort of engage with the film in an odd way. So I did watch it once. And then thinking about Godard playing with video switchers, as he did uh, with this film, sort of interacting with that medium, I downloaded a software to plot this film in so I could read the film and kind of click through the moments of the subtitles and look at the images before and after to try and like piece together a little bit more. Because... My ambitious idea was trying to see if I could read Come Back Africa through the thesis of Here and Elsewhere. And I don't know if I came to that point, but maybe that's one way we can frame this discussion. But it is a film that is like unbelievably packed with so many unique ideas. Yeah, I think it's, for me, you know, it is one bookend, you know, from from here, EC to his latest film, The Image Book. I think that that these two films really cap like where Godard ultimately has arrived. You know, I think that the the appearance in his life of Mieville was was incredible for him. And it really pushed him, you know, her work, her contributions, her thoughts really started to get him into a much, much deeper level of introspection, reflection, and and awareness, uh, you know, and, and obviously when people talk about the new wave, you know, it's a self-aware cinema and it's reflexive and this and that, but I, I really feel like this film really starts to show you uh, him really starting to psychoanalyze himself directly through his movies and through the process of making every movie after this. I, I, I think it is a great film for people to watch who who perhaps have seen the image book or yeah. um, you know, Notre Musique and and scratched their heads and been very perplexed. Uh, I think if you watch this, it really will prime you for, you know, where Godard has gone since then. And I love how it's part of the form, you know, I think like we should explain to, to the listeners, like, 
you know, Godard is no stranger to, to talking over a film. I used to joke that he invented like director's commentary by just talking over his <laughs> movies, you know, but this one has more of, yeah, like you, you're sort of pointing out, Andy, like it feels like Mieville is the one investigating him and the Zygavertov group and going like, what were you thinking? You know, like, why, yeah. why did you do this? And, and not in a necessarily a negative way, but just like, again, trying to unpack it. And you hear them talking back and forth throughout the movie. They're both constantly in this like shifting narration. And it reminded me not like in, again, totally artificial and totally real. It reminded me on the one hand of something like Marion bad, where like disembodied, you know, people are having this conversation. And on the flip side, it reminded me of like Jean Rouge and being like sitting down in, uh, you know, Chronicle of the Summer and going like, hello, we're the filmmakers. This is mm-hmm. what this, our film is what we're doing right now, you know, like and being transparent in that process. And I think that's part of that revelation you're talking about, Andy, of, yeah, that that element of interrogation uh, going on with their sort of trading off talking throughout the film. Yeah, I think that's a really great way of putting it, Marsh. Um, you know, this is Godard trying to understand the last several years of his life as much as this is about him specifically reflecting on, you know, the Palestinian uprising. Uh, and, and of course, you know, Mieville is there to sort of, you know, almost like a therapist, you know, get him to do the work, you know, ask him the probing questions uh, that, that he ultimately knows the answer to, but perhaps was too afraid to face them for whatever reason. You know, Godard is, uh, you know, described by some as a blowhard, uh, a narcissist, uh, uh, a coward, or, or on the flip side, one of the most courageous filmmakers ever made. In, in, in essence, he's all of those things. He's all of that. And, and I think it's Mieville here who, who really is sort of, if you want to even put it in that way, Marsh, kind of directing the film. She's sort of like directing Godard and not in the sense of telling him what to do, but as you said, once again, like questioning him, asking him to sort of fill in the blanks if he can. And I think that that's one of my favorite qualities of hybrid documentaries because typically the best ones are collaborative pieces with the subjects often, whether that's the subjects scripting scenes that they will perform in or trying to frame their own lives, as we see in Come Back Africa, or even then here with the Godard film, Mielville's coming in and sort of interrogating the filmmaker and questioning his role as an author of material that already exists. And I'm glad, Marsh, that you brought up Jean Rouche, because there's um, one film in particular of his that I really do like quite a lot called Moi en Noir, which came out in 1958. And that one, that's the film that is very much a collaboration between men and women from Niger who have, who have migrated to Cote d'Ivoire. And it is a, as he calls it, a shared ethnography or a ethno-fiction. And I think that Comeback Africa is doing something very similar, where the subjects themselves are co-authors of the film. 
and this one, of course, they are not credited by name because a part of its production being done in secret is that these people aren't going to be acknowledged because of the trouble that they can get in by having their names associated with such a subversive project. But it is clear, I mean, it's completely clear throughout the film, the sequences that they wrote themselves and that they were in full control of because there are so many long conversations that just feel like a a portrait that they've created of their, you know, their best jam sessions, you know, as they've been hanging out and like dishing on employers about liberals, about whites and South Africa, everything. Yeah, well, and, and in in those cases, it's not just that they co-wrote it, but are, yeah, performing it as well. Mm-hmm. The two, you know, credited co-writers, Louis Nicosi and Bloke Modasane, uh, are in the in the bar, you know, like in the illicit bar. Those are the guys complaining about liberals. Like those are the guys that co-wrote the movie, you know, and they bring, yeah, such energy to it. And again, I think if you want to connect these films, you you connect them through that subject matter as well, like the the sort of the oppressed and the revolutionary potential of these subjects of right the the blacks living under apartheid and the Palestinians living under another kind of apartheid, right? And yeah, it just again spiritually, yeah, there is uh, there's a lot going on there. Well, and I would also add to that, you know, in the case of of ECA here and elsewhere. The oppressed in that aren't also just it shouldn't be limited just to the Palestinians because the key to the the here is 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 our oppression, everyone's oppression now in the society of the spectacle in 1974. You know, it's the ways in which which all of us in these systems are are oppressed, right? Well, it's too simple and it's too easy. It's too simple and it's <laughs> yeah. too easy. Yeah, I yeah. would say specifically, yeah, these systems of questions and answers that must be abandoned. That is one of his theses, uh, one of the many <laughs> theses in this film. The idea that the system that everyone is stuck in is the system of images and sounds that we don't know how to decipher. And then because of that, we're asking the wrong questions and looking for the wrong answers. And maybe we shouldn't even be thinking about this in terms of questions and answers, which is like a chaotic way of thinking. But I guess as a way of simplifying it, for me, and something that I found an easy entry point between the two films is very literally just that title, Here and Elsewhere. And that's something that is, uh, you know, obviously quite present in Comeback Africa. And where you define the here and where you define the elsewhere, it can sort of be flipped in, in both ways. But much of the film is in Johannesburg, and that often feels like the here. And they're always referring to these other living conditions, and we see these working conditions, and perhaps that's the elsewhere. But then the back half of the film is in their own communities, and all of a sudden Johannesburg becomes the elsewhere as we sort of have a new here that we're introduced to. And I guess even then, the here and the elsewhere, in here and elsewhere, are constantly redefined throughout the film. That was one of the most striking similarities I found between the films. This idea that you could break the world up in either or, this or that, but in a way that's sort of a... False binary. A false binary. It's the snake eating itself. That perhaps this isn't a productive way of even thinking about how to get out of a situation like that. Yeah, I mean, there's there's that, that section in... 
uh, here and elsewhere. I'm gonna I'm gonna just start saying here and elsewhere, so I don't have to just tax myself with too many, uh, you know, strenuous French pronunciations on some very. Co- the, the, the first part of that's easy. The second part is uh, it, it really takes some mental fortitude to get through that. But um, but in here and elsewhere, there's this sequence where you know when when they start talking specifically about capital and and they really start going into the numbers you know there's an idea in there that Godard uh and and Mieville present about the sort of relativity of suffering uh mm-hmm. and again to I think your point it's it's great to to then think of even these two films as as here and elsewhere um because you know Godard says that you know uh you know, in, in one place you're poor, but in another place you're a millionaire, you know, like, uh, here you're, you're poor as shit in contemporary France. You sit there and you watch the TV and all you think about is all the shit you can't afford. You can't get that new car, right? You can't get that new washing machine, but Jesus Christ, what if you're a black man in Johannesburg in 1959, what would that man think about in your apartment? You know, what, what, what would he think even of the fact that you get to sit around and watch eight hours of television in a day, right? You know? I love when, when Godard brings up, he says, you know, yeah, some people are millionaires, but other people are millionaires in images of revolution, right? Specifically referring to the fighters that he filmed, being like, these guys are rich in revolutionary images, right? And other people, certainly not, you know? Yeah, I love when there's that central figure of like the father in the family who uh, his wife keeps complaining that he's like too busy at political meetings to tend to domestic issues at home and be like a finding work and just being like a contributing member of the family and society. And it's I think it's him specifically that Godard calls you poor revolutionary fool as we get mm-hmm. a close up of him just drooling watching television, a man who is rich in these images, but just completely inactive. Well, in that regard, you know, then he's he's that the way you've even described that the the figure of you know the the the, the French man, the French working man in in Godard's film is is very similar to Zachariah and what he's sort of going through. You know, a man who's who's trying and failing many times to just simply find work, who's also then. You know, sometimes getting taken to task for just hanging out in, I think, as Marsh put it, the illicit bar uh, with the guys who are just talking about revolution and things that for Zachariah are extremely abstract. You know, that's a big point between these two films as well. The difference between sort of like abstract revolutionary uh, ideas and 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 action, you know, practical, simple is the word that they use uh, over and over again in ECAOUR. Simple action, you know, simple work. And I think it's, you know, a, a, another thing that I was thinking about because Godard talks about really the impetus for the film. They both talk about, you know, getting back from, you know, shooting all that stuff. And then, yeah, being in France and the radical juxtaposition. And Godard, I think, specifically says the contradictions began to make me explode. Right. And that's just, yeah, the the contradictions of of life and of the world and the systems that we have uh, set up for ourselves. And I think you get that palpable sense of emotion in Comeback Africa of 
we see the contradictions that these people are living through, right? Because we see Zachariah, you know, he's this Zulu migrant worker, basically, who's been tricked into working in a gold mine in Johannesburg. And then he, you know, goes through a series of jobs that always end up with him getting fired, you know, for some sort of perceived infraction or racially motivated kind of bullshit uh, at every Every job he has. And again, just going back and forth between Sophia Town and Johannesburg, the contradictions are fucking insane. And I, and I love how Rogerson captures, I mean, all of it, really, you know? And I was, of course, very tickled by the inclusion of the Metro Theater twice in the film where we see MGM films playing in Johannesburg, right? And then up, we're going back off to the shanty town and hanging out with people who have literally nothing. And Farley Granger's on the marquee a mile down the road. I think I saw I think I saw one of the film titles as well at a certain point. It was Fiend Without a Face. Yes, I've thinking, seen that. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. I have too. And I was thinking like how that's such a great uh representation for for what these filmmakers are both talking about. You know, who is the fiend without a face? One hundred percent the fucking system, you know. Dude. <laughs> it's the, it's the, Capital. Yeah. Yeah. Dude. Man, you mentioning that sequence in the mines, too. There were multiple moments in Comeback Africa that reminded me of other gauntlet films that we've (laughs) experienced. Obviously, I thought of Barabbas when we were in those mines because it was equally hellish here, not with the garish color of like the sulfur mines in Barabbas, but just ruthless black and white deep shadows, the way that everybody's headlamps sort of looked like these procession of ghosts as they were making their way down these like metal stairwell deeper and deeper into the mines. That was a truly suffocating sequence of the film. And then the inverse of that, another film I was reminded of, was, of course, um, the film Sugarcane Alley that has that great scene where they're in the mansion of uh, some French colonialists and they're fucking around with all their stuff and they're dancing. Yeah, they're we're putting the perfume on, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And there was, so, there was such a great liberating moment, though... In in Comeback Africa, where Zachariah is, he's sort of putting some clothes away. He finds a little bottle of whiskey underneath some shirts. So he takes a swig. He starts having a good time. He puts on the lady of the house, her scarf. And that, you just know that one was going to end in disaster. And in Sugarcane Alley, they get away with it. And it's, it's, it's very comforting. But here, I was immediately on edge. And I knew, I was like, Zachariah is going to get caught. Um, and that, that, that is what happens. Here. Look at the room, look at the time, man. What are you playing at? I've been, I've been cleaning, man. Like hell you have. Look at all the mess around here. Oh, but the room was too much filthy, man. Look, don't give me any, any more cheek. I had enough trouble from you since you came here. You've been drinking. No, man. Yes, you have. I can smell it on your breath. No. It's whiskey. Therefore, Jack, have you been drinking my whiskey? No. And what's my stone around your neck? How dare you put something of mine on? Take it off. And don't you come near me, I'm, I'm going to call the police, do you understand? We the can police. call the police. 
Get out! Go on, get out! But yeah, his struggle reminded me of the struggles of some other figures that we've thought about before. Mm-hmm. And it's a struggle that even, you know, I think both filmmakers uh, grapple with. Uh, you know, one, I think, as we've said, is in, in the case of, you know, Come Back Africa, almost more implicit. And, you know, for Godard, it's extremely explicit. Um, but it's also this idea of the difficulties of, you know, being a revolutionary, of changing your lot in life. And not just your lot, but but everyone around you, you know, that, that kind of sweeping uh, change that so many people look for, you know, it's this idea that, that, you know, just to exist in this world, it requires so much of us and obviously so much of others elsewhere <laughs> compared to us here, uh, that, that when do you then find the time to sit around and think about, you know, organizing those around you and, and talking about, you know, Marx and capitalism and, and just getting that work done, that the, the political work, as they say, in uh, here and elsewhere, you know, that Zachariah, you know, he'll go in and he'll listen to these guys start talking about, you know, you know, what needs to happen and, and, and what's wrong with this world. But you look at Zachariah and he's just fucking physically exhausted from whatever he's trying to do. And, and if it's, if it's not even that he's working, it's that he's, he's, he's got to spend all day just trying to find a fucking job in the same way that, you know, this, this French guy in 1974 in Paris is sitting around and, and like, well, I, I got to work too. And my wife's got to work and I got to help my kids with homework. And, uh, you know, all I got energy for is a little bit of TV at the end of the night, you know, not mm-hmm. getting together with uh, my, my fellow union guys and talking about, you know, uh, redistributing wealth or something like that. And everything in his life revolves around, you know, the pass, right? You got to have the pass to go certain places. And it was very, it was very pointed to me because, you know, just the other day I went and saw Wiseman's Public Housing uh, at the Siskel. And that's a film that shows you, you know, what it was like to live in the Ida B. Wells housing projects. It is literally illegal to be outside. Like that's half of the film is just the cops going like, where are you going? What are you doing? And they're just simply walking to work or at their house, you know, and they're being harassed the minute they step outside, you know, um, mm-hmm. there, there's a point in, in public housing where they even say like, I'm going to charge you with like loitering on state supported land or something, you know, like it's illegal to stand on the projects because it's government funded or whatever. It's insane, you know, and to, to see it. Yeah. Like in full display in comeback Africa, he's getting hassled, you know, just, going to and fro. I mean, it's fucked. Yeah, he needs papers to exist in Comeback Africa. And just to have, just to be able to be a laborer, he needs his permit to be in Johannesburg. Because that's one of the first lessons he learns when he's at the mines. He thinks he'll be able to transition into a job in the big city soon after this. And, you know, one of the old timers gives him a harsh dose of reality, mentioning, well, you're going to need a work permit in order to actually end up landing a gig in Johannesburg and they they work their ways to get him one but there are scenes of him wandering around Johannesburg trying to get work with an expired permit 
and then it does feel exactly like how you described. It's just illegal to be here. It's illegal for you to be outside in your own country. Well, and I think he also makes the point very early on that that humans like Zachariah in South Africa at this particular time, they've they've been ripped from their lands. You know, they've been sort of like forced into this position in the first place, right? If if you probably left it up to Zachariah, he would be happy on the farm with his family, but that's not even an option anymore. Mm-hmm. So he's even, you know, all this stuff that you both have laid out, it's like that that it also has begun with basically like you know, the white apartheid overlords being like, well, you can't just sit on this farm anymore either, but but you can't work here without this thing and you can't get this thing without that thing that we're not even going to give you. So where do you even go in that confusing spiral of bureaucratic uh, oppression? You know, interesting then, too, that Gadar says that, you know, he, he went to the Middle East to find images that you and, and show images that you don't see uh, in in France, right? And one of the things that is sort of special in in retrospect about Comeback Africa is that it's one of the only uh, documents of Sophia Town that exists to this day, right? There was a whole, you know, the the underbelly or underside of, of Rich Johannesburg, this whole sort of like shantytown setup. There's like no other film of it even, you know, like, and this film exists as, yeah, like a, a testament to that. Yeah, we didn't see any of that shit in Durkee. My father loves me. He will find me. Father loves me. He will no, no we, we certainly did not. <laughs> Absolutely did not. He had two polar opposites in their portrayals of, of South Africa. <laughs> I, don't think we, I think we even brought that up when we watched Durkee. I think all of us were just like, this isn't South Africa. <laughs> like, what is this? <laughs> yeah, it's true. But no, I mean, one thing that these films a point of divergence between the two of them. <laughs> of course there's there's many, but I think and it's something that I love about hybrid documentaries and something that's very present in Comeback Africa, which is the way reality interrupts the quote unquote dramatic proceedings. So one thing that I thought about here and elsewhere was how even when we were seeing quote unquote real images, like the footage of Palestine and the revolutionaries, as the film goes on, you really start to get this feel that these images aren't even real. These all seem structured. They seem organized. It seems like Godard and the team were creating a reality for us. And it just, as it goes on, reality seems to be completely stripped away with every step of the film. And then in Comeback Africa, it's the type of film where we're on the street capturing reality and we've got people looking directly into the camera and when we do there's just this rush of the illusion of fiction disappearing and feeling as though we're suddenly there and we're inhabiting this world and I love the way that that's blended throughout because that that street photography is just next level um so like as you mentioning like this is the only record we have of Sophia Town it's such a great record too because Rogerson's eye and the things that he decides to focus on are just so 
illuminating and illustrative of, of this space. Well, I guess, you know, uh, Godard poses a question in, in here and elsewhere. First question, well, then how to use one's time to occupy space? And, you know, Rogerson mm. was only half lying when he told the, the South African government he was doing a music film because... You know, I think like about a third of the film itself is just a musical. And one that in in this case that you're alluding to, Ryan, is we see multiple bands of different styles, of different ages throughout. Uh, not just Sophia Town, but there's also a sequence where they go into the city and perform, uh, which is a very striking sequence as well in terms of mm-hmm. like the clash between reality and fiction. Um, but yeah, so to, to answer Godard's question, right, yeah, like play music, you know? Try and feel good in this rotten world, right? Mm-hmm. I think too, to that end, you know, that's that's part of why Godard is using that footage from 1970 and, and using it for those questions. Because, you know, even to take a step back, as as you, you know, pointed out that that Comeback Africa has some of, you know, this this now very like haunting footage of a space that that we don't really have other documents of. I mean, this footage that Ghadar and Goran captured of these Palestinian militants in 1970, uh, you know, we're, we're watching ghosts. Ghadar points out that mm-hmm. basically, like, all these people were killed in the September massacres of, of, of you know, 1970, only, like, months after they filmed this. He's like, all these people are dead. Like, I knew these guys. They're dead. And here are some pictures of them dead, you know, that... That here they are organizing and working and doing calisthenics and yeah, <laughs> reciting planning poems. commando raids. Yeah, planning commando raids. You know, uh, I was gonna make a really sick joke too about how our, you know, and this film has its own commando raid that's set in Munich in 1972. <laughs> what do you gotta do? You gotta get a commando raid going. But I thought that'd be a little, little dark. Uh, but you know, yeah, I mean, like. Godard is is reflecting on that, you know, and and the weird like permanence and impermanence of images of people, of spaces, uh, of time in and how cinema particularly is the the sort of arbiter of that that uh, phantasmagoria, whatever you want to call it, you know. Yeah, and he does refer to those revolutionaries as actors there is at one point we get you know in his video switcher device we see the digital text on the screen all of these actors are dead Mm -hmm. and even here he's reframing this footage we're seeing even after seeing them in supposed reality documentary portraits of them on the field and then actual images of their dead bodies and he's still calling them actors because of the structure of this piece. We're still in this film world. We're still in his interpretation and his diagnoses of images. Well, and that's the work too, that he's doing to sort of come to the realization of the, the fiction, you know, the artifice in, in what they, they claimed that they were, you know, fighting against by by being a part of the Ziga Vertov group, by making this film, by attempting to make this film victory in 1970. But, you know, Ryan, as you mentioned earlier, it's like, you know, the ways in which you see the sort of artifice 
you know, stripping away the reality in here and elsewhere, you know, you see it even immediately if you look closely. There is this shot of of all these young Palestinian girls who are, you know, presumably their footage was to, you know, it, it was basically a propaganda film that they were making, you know, mm-hmm. and they have this 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 sequence where you see all these girls, these young girls in like military fatigues, uh, doing like calisthenics together in formation, and if you look at their feet. Every one of them has a stone, a large stone placed where they need to be standing. They're marks. And it's very clear to me that like they had to they had wow. to get these these young, perhaps slightly uncoordinated girls who've probably never been in the frame of a film before. And they have to say, like, this is where you have to stand to make sure that this frame looks good. How are we gonna mark you out in the field? We don't have gaff tape. So they put stones in front of each of the girls where they were supposed to stand, you know, and, and, you know, of course it gets much more, uh, <laughs> explicit and direct later on in the film. And that's really where Mieville comes in, as you mentioned earlier, Marsh, with like her interrogation of saying like, okay, you showed us this piece of footage. Now, what about the footage we didn't see? You know, what about the direction that's happening behind the scenes? What about the silence? Yeah, what about the silence? Yeah, the film is very preoccupied with loud noises and the noises and sounds of cinema and images that drown out, you know, other realities. I think at one point he mentions, you know, where people are learning to see but not to read, you know, while watching television and having these advertisements sort of like blaring in your face um, and these images of revolution and becoming, as we said, a, a, a millionaire in revolutionary images. One thread that I really liked in Here and Elsewhere is when he mentions sort of the responsibilities of the here to the elsewhere and like what it means to be a here sort of engaging with the elsewhere. And he he has that moment where in the film they say like, we did this and we have images of the revolution, you know, four to five years ago, but what are we doing now? And we come back and it's in France and it's a mother talking to her daughter, talking about, you know, oh, did you get your homework done? What are we having for dinner tonight? Those sorts of things. As if this, this trip is something that, this like film project is something that they don't bring back with them philosophically. It's something they've abandoned. It's something they've worked on. And just in doing a little bit of research on Comeback Africa, I, I did learn about how Rogerson, you know, one way he didn't fall into those traps that Godard is describing of certain types of, um, you know, quote unquote political filmmakers. I read about how one of the singers in the film that gets her own song, uh, Miriam Makeba, he sponsored her to leave South Africa so she could end up having like a full-on international musical career. And she gets her whole song in the film inside this apartment where everybody's hanging out. Two songs, really. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. They call for an encore and join in with her. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, don't keep us waiting. Da 
But she ended up becoming, you know, a, oh, a South she was African a, she was a huge star. star. Yeah, she was like a global star, and yeah, mm-hmm. uh, Rogerson like put her up and and got her, you know, got her in touch with the right people and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, he seems like a seems like a true G, you know. Yeah, I mean, because it's it's just so nice to. I feel like so often with the case with some of this stuff, it does feel like questions of ethics come in for certain types of documentary filmmaking, especially from a foreign perspective, coming to another country, capturing things. There's still something refreshing about someone then using their resources to, you know, help enable positive change and just like kind of bringing more than just shedding light through their own film for their own personal gain, but then uplifting those around them. Kadar should have used his resources to fight the Jordanian army. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you know, that's, it's, it's funny, Marge, that you said that, but I mean, like, I, I think you really feel that, that, that sense in Gadar of almost like survivor's guilt. Yeah, of course. That, you know, he he went and, and he he made this thing and they were, of course, all hopped up on on Maoist militancy and and cinema's power to 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 be at the vanguard of the revolution. And then, you know, after all of that kind of collapses in in blood and bullets and death, you know, Godard sits there and goes like I'm just a fucking filmmaker. Like, what the hell were we doing? Like, this wasn't a game, you know? And like, where are these people now? And I think this is one of his most, like, depressed... Dude, he's in full Doomer mode, like, in this film. And it's Mieville that, like, you know, gives it some some salvation in that regard, you know? Yeah. (laughs) And, And again, that's why, like, going back to my intro, I'm like, I really do feel like she saved his fucking life. Because when when she finds him here at this point, I mean, this is a broken, broken man who has seen his ideals come come collapsing down around him and and not just you know professionally and personally when you know his young wife left him <laughs> you know but like my god like a bunch of fucking people that he just was screwing around with were fucking massacred you know i mean that that really hits him hard and and credit to mieville that she's going we're not going to let you off the fucking hook so easily. You are going to face this right now, right here. You're going to face that elsewhere here. That quality is something, again, that I do love from hybrid films because thinking about tackling certain really intense subjects, not being someone who has lived through these types of experiences. Even The first thing I think of recently is the, the Robert Greene film Procession about sexual abuse within the, the Catholic Church and how there's something so productive about having the subjects themselves portray their, their experiences as art and as fiction and representing it in an alternate way where it's not the sole voice of the filmmaker themselves who is controlling it. And here I almost feel like Mielville is the one coming in and kind of taking him again out of that doomer mode of taking him out of just this 
endless spiral of, you know, reflecting on all of this in a very grim way. And I also think that the people in Comeback Africa are often the source of a lot of humor in the film that I wonder if it wouldn't have been there otherwise if it was just, you know, an American being the one who was scripting it. And I mean, we should talk about that incredible scene when they're just dishing, when they're all hanging out and talking about liberals. I was just cackling throughout the entire thing. It's so fucking funny. I mean, so that whole sequence that you're describing of them just, you know, just going in on liberals, like so, I mean, that conversation, we've had that conversation yeah. today. <laughs> you know, we're having that conversation. I mean, both of these films are incredibly, I think, relevant to to where we are here. You know, the, the elsewhere of both of these films even is so... Uh, so much in conversation with R here, you know. It's 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 truly a, a one of, I would go venture to say the the most blessed pairings we've had in the sense that that they really do communicate so many things about how little has actually progressed from from you know the late fifties through the seventies to now fucking twenty twenty two and the same conversations that people are having. And like, yeah, I guess to that end, Ryan, if you cannot find some humor in all that, you're gonna go completely nuts. You're gonna go full Godard Doomer and like you know, crash your motorcycle and try to kill yourself a couple times or whatever, you know? <laughs> if you can't produce something out of that. There's some stuff that they they say, you know, when they're hanging out that, that are literally, like, said by, uh, by Godard as well. Uh, and I would be, of course, like, remiss not to point out that uh, Louis Nicosi, who's one of the guys of those scenes, he was exiled from South Africa for 30 years for being a communist, right? So, you know, you hear him say stuff like, we live in a world of violence. We live in a world of labels. I'm not exaggerating. I'm just telling you what happened. You now, was, are excusing him. I'm not at all excusing him. I'm sorry for him. Terribly sorry for him. Because recently, look, look at what's happened to him. Now he has become a man who thinks that the only way he can do things is to get them from force. And sometimes he forgets the things that he wants. And he only remembers the force, like what he did to Zacharias. Right. And Godard is dedicating entire montage sequences to living in a world of labels and living in a world of violence, right? Mm -hmm. But ultimately, yeah, the, the stuff with the liberals is really great because that's when they all start laughing, you know, mm -hmm. uh, about, you know, quote-unquote, trying to sell you humanity over a cup of tea, you know. The liberal just doesn't want a grown-up African. Uh -huh. He wants the African he can sort of patronize, pet on his head, see, uh -huh. and tell him that, with just a little bit of luck, you see, someday you'll be a grown-up man, fully civilized. He wants the African from the country, from his natural environment, unspoiled. That's not a liberal. Pure, uncontaminated. Well, the then comes the liberals, they promise you the vote. But this, yes, the liberals yeah. are more... they are having the country. Yeah. But this liberals are They more can more. keep the vote more. If we want the country, then we'll give them the vote. <laughs> I love the liberals. And just the patronizing sort of aspect of of those systems and humiliating aspect of those systems, which we see, you know, when Zachariah becomes like a, a, 
houseboy for this just the worst <laughs> the worst woman of all time the worst person in the world is the housewife uh, in yeah. this film that he works for and it's it's funny too because we get a sort of demonstration of the the white south african liberal mind in that moment because the husband is like they're only simple country natives who come here and are completely inexperienced don't know the first thing about electricity or brooms and you treat them as if they must cook mushroom soup these people are uncivilized if you could have seen the way that boy looked at me in the kitchen for two pins he would have slit my throat i tell you something they just savages savages he threw out the mushroom yeah, soup. The, the mushroom soup like sent this woman <laughs> into a psychotic rage, you know? And yeah, so we see the husband just like doesn't give a fuck and is just like drinking some liquor and reading a magazine or whatever. If anything, for his own selfish purposes, because he just f- seems so fatigued with having to keep going back to like the agency office to request a new laborer to help his wife, because it seems like this is a recurring pattern where she's constantly throwing out people for minor infractions on her order of her universe. Yeah, she's power tripping for sure. Yeah, and it it should also be pointed out, right, that in Here and Elsewhere, one of the things that Godard is lamenting is the, the vague and complicated system we find ourselves trapped in, and that's precisely what happened to Zachariah, because as he says, you told me to wash that specific pot out so i had to throw the stuff out to wash the pot you know like it's a vague and complicated system what am i supposed to do with that and yeah i think the the husband the the liberal as you're sort of getting at ryan i even read it as he's just like he just doesn't like all the commotion like you know that's also his way of just being like let me just read my fucking paper in peace (laughs) you know like of course he didn't know any better he's a native don't scream at him though it's not a big deal like, you know, we're we're doing a nice thing for him, you know? Like, you gotta just... As Gadar said, there are no more simple images, only simple people who are quiet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, you know, really, that's why, again, for me, you know, this film is like the beginning of like his his ultimate project that kind of has recently anyway until his next film culminated in the image book. You know, a thing that Godard has been struggling with or fascinated by, I guess both at the same time, is, you know, how do we reconcile like struggle, oppression, violence in a world populated with so much noise and images and Elizabeth Taylor's fucking smile? You know, how do we reconcile the horrors, the true horrors of the concentration camps with with Jane Russell's tits, you know, a world that has both of these things slapping us in the face at every moment. You know, I was thinking about a funny meme that, uh, you know, somebody posted, I don't even know if it's a fucking meme, but somebody posted this fucking thing, you know, during the, you know, at the start of the Ukraine war, the, the recent Ukraine war, uh, where this dude was like, I'm on TikTok and I'm scrolling past thirst traps and fucking war crimes footage. Like, what is happening to my brain? Like, I think I'm going to have irreparable fucking brain damage from this. That's exactly what Godard began to really uh, uh, investigate, like, here. 
you know this this idea that will will come in in a lot of his projects after this his entire histoire du cinema project is very much about this you know how do we reconcile you know these images of distraction with all of the horrible fucking things that are constantly happening throughout our histoire our history you know i love the moment in here and elsewhere where that's illustrated with those like 35 millimeter slides that kind of recreate the way it feels to be channel surfing yeah, or scrolling or yeah scrolling. or scrolling even yeah it, it does fit that where there are hands entering the frame constantly lifting and replacing different 35 millimeter slides and the lights are going on and off and then the sounds of course are being tinkered with throughout and it's directing our attention and sometimes even contradicting the types of images we see is we'll hear gunshots over something where you know you wouldn't presumably think there would be gunshots But I thought that that was, you know, something that he typically will do through just cross-cutting and montage and overlaying of footage. It was interesting to see him have almost like a little toy, which I thought was very playful, shifting these little slides around to show us what channel surfing can feel like and maybe the chaos it's creating with noise in our brains. Sure. Or some of the... the you know, the, the video switching that he's gotten into. Again, another reason why I find this film so so important to watch for people who are, you know, fans of some of his more contemporary work is like, this is really, I think, the first film where he's like, oh, hell yeah. He's got the Hitler switch. <laughs> yeah, dude, he's got the Hitler switch. <laughs> Yeah, he's got the he's got the 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 image of Henry Kissinger's big dumb smile and just a naked woman's ass, and he's just sliding back and forth between the two, you know. And then there's just like computer text that just says kiss. <laughs> yeah, kiss, 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 kiss. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's fucking awesome, you know, and and it's hilarious. But yeah, that's exactly the same idea, right? That you're just sort of like scrolling past atrocities and then like some some tna and it's like okay now what <laughs> you know like you're gonna go to work tomorrow you dumbass <laughs> like you poor revolutionary fool <laughs> i love the um the other video switch where he's describing a mafia boss and we can see nixon's jowls mm -hmm. and then the the image goes up a little bit more so we can see his full face and with sound too, there's a there's a really great bit where he's just shooting like close ups of of sound gear, you know, and he's like he's in the narration he's jamming on like sound as a historical metaphor and like using the the you know the sounds of like Hitler and Nazi rallies and then he starts like he does like a mega mix of protest music and like protest songs where uh, you know he's like. Prague, you know, May 68, 
Italy, France, China, and he and he keeps like turning up on this like little speaker, like. Toujours trop fort, Prague, yeah, suddenly International comes in. You know, yeah, he's great. jamming yeah. hard on like so many different patriotic songs. I mean, yeah, he, he really is getting to that next level with his like sound design uh, mm-hmm. in this movie, you know, which obviously continue, has continued throughout his career. I mean, he's one of the most innovative sound filmmakers of all time. Um, and that's without the way they work with the images, you know? Yeah. Well, and you know, when he and Mieville like began their, their, their partnership in life and art, uh, they, they named their new production company, Sony Maj, right? Sound image. And, and for him, it's, as, it's as again, a word he uses a lot or they use a lot. It's, it's simple, right? It's just sound and image, but it's also what you do with it. You know, uh, and again, I, I can't help but like see Godard in this in this moment in his life. You know, he's just he's so sad. He's so bummed out. He doesn't know what to do. I mean, he says that specifically in this film, like, I don't know what to fucking do. You know, like, what am I going to fucking do? And I could just see Mieville just kind of like sitting him down in a room and like putting all these toys in front of him and being like, just go, go. Go. Don't even think about it. Just start fucking going. You know, we'll worry about what this is going to become later. But but it's that sort of process that I think ultimately we now see in just about every single Godard film afterwards. I mean, you always see process in his films, but this film for me really is like a huge turning point for him because of her, like kind of pointing him in that direction. Like it isn't just to make the movie, it's to also make yourself making the movie if that makes any sense right again the 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 artifice and the reality like it's not just that you're creating this construct it's that you also need to uh construct yourself constructing it you know you need to show everyone that you need to really really lay it bare and that's something that the new wave flirted with but really the falling out of the new wave was like in that moment in 68 when you know some of them you know Truffaut is just like well I just want to win an Oscar you know and and Godard's like no fuck we gotta be at the goddamn barricades right like this this beginning of a, a split there that then sent him sent Godard specifically down that militant path with a with a you know, a filmmaker or charlatan, whatever you want to call him, like Jean-Pierre Guerin, to just suddenly, like, find himself in the middle of the fucking desert with a bunch of Palestinian militants who are about to get massacred, you know, going like, what am I doing? (laughs) Like, what is this? You know, one thing these films both have in common, too, that I think is interesting is the, the repetition of images, right? I think as a way to... Uh, well, I guess for, for different <laughs> ends, perhaps, but it, it did strike me how Rogerson, you know, to illustrate the passing of time and of just like kind of this oppressive system in general throughout the film, there's repeated sort of like 
going to work, sort of like city bustling kind of montages when you see all the black workers like getting on and off buses and trains and like going through the city. And he repeats the same shots and the same setups. Uh, And in general, I mean, the whole film has this, like I mentioned earlier, this kind of like rhythmic city symphony quality to it where, yeah, we can just detach from the narrative and he's like showing us, you know, the the buildings of Johannesburg or the angles of the mine, you know, really kind of like feasting on the environment, you know, and showing what it's like from, from certain perspectives and trying to root it uh, in these characters perspectives specifically. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's like, it's a film very much about this one person Zachariah but it's 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 so much more than that Zachariah is you know these people Zachariah is you know the 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 black living in racist ass fucking Johannesburg like trying to 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 make their way uh so yeah you know i think that repetition like speaks to that point that that just as much as we will spend time you know with this one very particular sort of uh oppression and violence uh he constantly sort of almost like zooms back out for us to see that this is but one life in in many experiencing the same thing and Godard, you know, uses repetition as well. And in fact, there's almost like identical images of the the revolutionaries camp in here and elsewhere. And the shot sort of like wide shots of Sophia town uh, are like literally the same kind of like wide shots, you know, sort of landscape, uh, sort of shanty shots. Yeah, like children climbing over rubble, whether they're playing and performing music or, you know, putting on a demonstration for Godard and his crew. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I again, I think that's also what that, that French family is supposed to represent, you know, as much as we sort of spend time with with this particular family, they are... They are us. And Godard's constantly like, you know, using all these different uh, sort of ways of, of identifying you, me, he, she, us, we. Like at, at certain points, like it all just starts to kind of uh, uh, jumble together, you know, and we, we lose a sense of, of our own particular individuality in this. I think that's very much the mission of, of both filmmakers in slightly different ways. I was surprised at how often Godard used the second person. I was trying to reflect back on some of his other video essays that I've seen, and I, just from my memory, I didn't remember that being mentioned as often, but it could also just be that watching this film and then him making me feel like that French family. I mean, here I am watching it on my TV. I don't know if you ever imagined that would be the case, but you know that that's how it feels when he says "you." It feels like I'm being wrapped up in all of this. You know, I'm just as much to blame as the collective, as everybody. You know. Yeah, we're all on the hook for this fucking mess. That we're in, <laughs> yeah. You know? yeah, you know, I I came across a, a Cassavetti's quote about Rogerson uh, that I think 
you know, kind of resonates with the the experience of of both of these films, or at least what the directors I think are trying to do. And your comment, Andy, uh, really made me think of it. But Cassavetta said, "To tell the truth as you see it is not necessarily the truth. To tell the truth as someone else sees it is, to me." much more important and enlightening. And then he says, On the Bowery is like his favorite film, basically. So, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, again, that idea of of reflecting, yeah, multiple perspectives or sure. all kinds of perspectives outside of the filmmakers, right? Sure, and a, a big key there, especially for someone like Cassavetes, is empathy, and, and not just trying to, a, a very different word than identify, you know? And I, so one of the things, one of my triggers when people talk about movies, you know, I identify with that character. It's right. like, fuck you. Like, you're trying to project yourself, right? That's the Laura Mulvey, like, narcissism of mm-hmm. the, the cinematic experience. You narcissistic fuck. You identify with Tom Cruise and Top Gun Maverick. Yes, I do. Get yeah. the fuck out of here, right? But, but to empathize is a very different, very different process than than identifying and and that's so key for for someone like Cassavetes for someone like Rogerson and in his own way for someone like Godard because they want us they would love it if we could empathize with someone that we don't identify with that we don't recognize that we wouldn't possibly even want to hang out with you know in the world right but if we can do that if we can start to do that then maybe that's like the simple work that Gadar is talking about here right if we can just start to empathize with these palestinians maybe that's the first step right maybe that's the first the first part of this journey that we can actually get to changing this world can you can you possibly for a second empathize with a fucking 19 year old russian conscript right now that's being thrown into a meat grinder in ukraine if you can do that then we might actually be able to do something about fucking war right as opposed to identifying with the hero zelinsky that the you know the fucking ben stiller just did or whatever you know (laughs) yeah i you know and it's funny that we've been talking this long about hybrid docs and haven't brought up just the turn of phrase that Herzog likes to throw around this idea of ecstatic truth. And I mean, I don't want to sound like, you know, those people who say cinema is a machine that generates empathy, you know, but I think that what you're saying, Andy, is completely true. And that is sort of what the purpose of using ecstatic truth as a tool can be in cinema. And that's why I like these types of films. We have these elements of reality, but by narrativizing it and making it this collaborative process, it does reveal this ecstatic truth and causes us to empathize in a way that we wouldn't necessarily, let's say, if we were just a family sitting watching images of war on television and having it filtered through this very bland and generic way where we... The monoform. The monoform, taking these images and only understanding them with this narrow perspective. Here, truth is much more elastic, and it becomes ecstatic by tinkering with it. And when you can feel the filmmaker doing that, that's what really affects me. And I mean, Godard even brings that up much more aggressively when he has when he has scenes showing how they were affecting 
the reality. There's a moment where they're interviewing a woman and then off screen, the director mentions, we have to do this again. Do it differently. You have to hold your head in a different angle. Like you're, you're leaning too much to the left. Can you stand up straight? And Godard, you know, in his narration says, here's the director, the silent figure. Like he, we don't ever see the camera turned back on them. Um, they are the ones that are controlling this, but faceless. And then I feel like in great hybrid cinema, it's that hybridization that makes you see the director. And by seeing them and making them feel as though they are part of that collaboration, to me, that's where the empathy comes from as a viewer. Well, it has a greater even meaning in, in, in life itself that I think Godard is alluding to because he says about the director and also many other people, the one that commands and gives orders is never seen, right? That's that also in that moment. I mean, that's that's Mieville's voice. Yes. We should point that out. Yes. You know, who's, who's really... She's grilling his ass too, especially because she's like, and she's cute. I don't even want to dig into that aspect of why you chose this woman to pretend she was pregnant uh, in yeah. Beirut, you right. know, like and say... She specifically <laughs> says... Secrets of this kind lead to fascism. Yeah, yes, it is very much a, uh, those sequences are like, this is the slippery slope. Like, you are one step away from fascism yeah. in the way that you're directing this film. Yeah, I mean, that's it, right? Because it's manipulation. It's like, mm -hmm. you're talking about revolution and, and overthrowing oppression, and here you are oppressing your audience, right? You're oppressing them yeah. to think exactly how you want them to think, you know? It's not some ecstatic truth that they're going to arrive at. It's a truth that you are grabbing them by the neck and dragging them towards, you know? And it's it's ironic in that sense, right? That, that you know, this is, in a sense, right, Godard putting the Ziga Vertov group to bed, you know, when you consider the namesake of their militant group, Ziga Vertov, and their obsession with Soviet cinema and Soviet montage, which was... Let's be honest, uh, amazing. I'm, a, I, I, I'm obsessed with it, but perhaps some of the most manipulative cinema you will ever find in terms of taking an audience and trying to get them to arrive at a conclusion that you have finally constructed and crafted as a filmmaker. Not all Soviet cinema, but a lot Bertov of it. would split hairs. He would say he wasn't manipulative, but Eisenstein was, you know. Sure. And that's perhaps, again, <laughs> my point, like the, the irony of them calling themselves the Ziga Vertov group and then going out and doing this kind of shit, you know? And for me, able to say like, see, look what you did. You know, you betrayed your ideals in this moment. And, and that's... That's how we arrive at these 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 sort of I think you used the phrase earlier, Ryan, the, the snake eating its own tail. These mm -hmm. like vicious cycles uh, that we 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 can't break out of unless we do open it up. And to your point, you know about the whole like, well, you reveal the director, and and that's you know a part of it. But also in that sense, it it also makes the audience suddenly realize that they're there, you know, that they're yeah. a part of the process as well, you know, that that we're also a part of this whole fucking apparatus. Yeah, and in a way that's not identifying, as you talked about. It's not us feeling through the process of identification that we are a part of this process. It's us acknowledging our role as a spectator, as just another person on this planet. And that element of manipulation, too, 
is addressed briefly, but in a moment I keep thinking about from Comeback Africa, when Zachariah is, after a day's work, meeting with some friends afterwards, and he mentions something he saw in the white woman's home. He says, I saw talking boxes there. Do you know what they are? And you know, whether he's talking about televisions or radios, it's, it's like not quite clear because they don't dwell on it for too long. But one of his friends, without explaining whatever this device is to Zachariah, he just mentions, yeah, you know, they, they make white people look good. That's all you have to worry about with those talking boxes. Like, don't don't spend too much time dwelling on that. And that's just, it, that's something that obviously, you know, it's just something that gets said all the time with these types of films, how they feel very contemporary still. But I think that, you know, these types of films do show how history is such a slow moving thing and how, you know, people like to think of the past as being so far away. But these systems like are not any different whether they were in 1960 in Comeback Africa or they were hundreds of years before that, you know, like these conversations are always happening because the process is so slow and it's important to not be this type of spectator that just identifies with films selfishly and seeing themselves in it, but trying to understand the world around them, which I think is one of the goals of both of these movies. Yeah, I think that's such a, a great way of putting it because, you know, there is even this moment in in here and elsewhere where he starts like specifically like playing with significant historical dates and he's got a calculator <laughs> and he's punching in all these different like years where something very significant happened, you know. Que l'image d'un 17 plus par exemple plus, par exemple, l'image d'un 36 égale déjà au mois de mai ici l'image d'un 68. Godard math. Yeah, Godard's math. 1917 plus 1968, you know, <laughs> minus 1936 equals 5,246. You know, it's like, it's amazing. But like, I, I, I think at a certain level, like that's the point, you know, like we're still dealing with the ramifications of 1917. We're still dealing with the ramifications of 1968. We're still dealing with the ramifications of 1941, 1945, 1970 fucking four. I mean, we're dealing with 1974 a lot. That's for sure on this podcast. But, but yeah, you know, again, here and elsewhere, we think of the past as elsewhere. The past is here. You know, again, that's what Bergson says, you know, the, the the present was the present is the the thing that's constantly slipping away from us but the past is and it's right here but most people they can't see that and and Godard is specifically in this film you know this is his beginning like assault on television really directly you know and this idea of the uninterrupted flow of images that's what TV is. It's it's a horribly ambivalent uh, uh, spectacle where where we have no time to to sit in silence and think to do the simple work because one image after another is constantly bombarding us. You know that's for him the biggest difference between a film and watching television. Television you don't have time to just stop and reflect. You know on a thing on an idea on a concept because hey. 
right after Friends, here comes the Big Bang Theory or whatever, you know, like, oh, you know, think about the news, right? You know, this horrible thing that the news will hit you with. And then immediately after that, somebody's selling you fucking toilet paper. And then some like human interest story to suddenly make you feel better about all the horrible shit that you just saw. Like, don't even do anything about it. Don't even worry about it. Because guess what? Somebody saved a puppy from a fucking river the other day. Wonderful. <laughs> the flow of images and sounds that hide the silence, right? That's what Godard says, says all that silence becomes deadly. I also think it relates to that really fascinating moment where he talks about the idea of American movie and the images of an American movie, which I think he describes as, you know, you have an image of armed struggle, you have an image of political work, you have an image of extended war, and then you have an image of victory. And he, he means that a bit more metaphorically, but when he presents that, he has people holding images of those things separately. And he says, here we are, we have the images in front of us, but this is an impossibility in terms of how we read them because cinema, it's one after another. And then he has them kind of hold the frame up in front of the camera, take it down, move to the side. But I was wondering if he would change that thesis a little bit thinking about scrolling and, you know, your story, Andy, about the TikTok feed that was alternating between Ukraine and, like, thirst videos, you know? There's something about the way images can be displayed now next to each other um, in a way that he says is somewhat outside of cinema, even though it's still part of television because you're channel surfing. But here now, I feel like a lot of the images we do interact with are side-by-side, he does engage with that, obviously, then in the image book. That's sort of like how he keeps furthering this thesis. But that was certainly something I was I, – I loved that sequence of the film, the holding up the individual images and thinking about their relationship when we have to see them in real time. Nicholas Ray tried it, you know, but uh, most people usually just use one image. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what's wrong with cinema today. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Man, it, Thinking about that calculator, you know, going through the film twice, I feel like I am much stronger for it. And, you know, the the kind of the second pass I had with it clarified a lot of things. But that first moment with the calculator, when we have Godard's math class, where he talks about doing mathematical equations for hopes and dreams and the way that zero in a capitalist society reflects those hopes and dreams of the individual where zero when added actually means more people but we look at zero and it's nothing i don't know what any of that is (laughs) that that part was too hard for me (laughs) well i would say you know uh i i think again that goes back to his his sort of thesis about like the relativity of of quantitative thinking, the relativity of right. of richer poorer, of rich and poor, because again, it's like, oh, I have you have ten dollars, add a zero to what I have, I have a hundred dollars, even though I added a zero, it seems like it's nothing, but. So now I have more, right? And and we can keep adding zeros and zeros, right? Like I remember when I was horrified reading some article a while back where it was like, billionaires are the new millionaires. And I was like, what the fuck does that even mean? <laughs> I think that's that's the point that Godard is sort of like, at a certain sure. point, you just start adding zeros on to, to what Jeff Bezos has. And it, it does become like- The Fed does it all the time. 
Yeah, the Fed does it all the time, right? But I think that's his point, you know, that it, it on a certain level shouldn't make sense to us because those aren't those are abstract numbers they're, they're not real fucking numbers right. you know i mean he's basically talking about fucking bitcoin you know <laughs> <laughs> i just love the moment in comeback africa too where they when they're talking about like joining the baha'i religion he's like my only religion is art <laughs> you know? oh god <laughs> but see I, I i think for me i don't know what you guys felt but when i watched that sequence i i you, you sort of brought this up earlier. One of you brought this up earlier, like the, the humor. And I even feel like in that moment, that is a very like self uh, reflexive moment for the writers even, and them kind of taking the piss out of themselves because at the end of the day, even though they are, you know, talking about all this stuff and, and as we have done ourselves before, you know, you sit around, you have some drinks, you have some cigarettes and you solve all the problems of the world in a conversation. And then what do you do? You get up and go deal with the same bullshit tomorrow. You know? And I, I really felt like that was this very kind of like humor, uh, this, this humorous, like sort of winking at, at that, you know, of the, the, as Godard would say, like the poor revolutionary fools, Right. Seeking revolution in religion or in art or wherever. And meanwhile, Zachariah is just sitting there being like, I don't know what any of this means, but uh, my work pass is expired. So I got to right. I got to split. Well, and the, the guy that helps him get work after that scene is the half white guy who was defending liberals. So the guys who are, you know, the most revolutionary in the meeting are were not the guys the next morning pounding the pavement with Zachariah trying to get him a new pass, get him a new job. Absolutely. You know, it's this, this in the end of here and elsewhere, there's this moment where we once again get footage of the revolutionaries and Godard's like, what are they talking about? Mieville's like translating for them. And she's like, well, they're talking about simple things. They're talking about the, the difficulties they had crossing the river under machine gun fire, you know? And it, it, again, goes back to this idea of, like, you know, abstract thinking versus practical thinking. And it reminded me, I don't, I think it might have been Picasso. I don't remember who said it. Some artist. I've heard this thing paraphrased a million times, but it, it reminded me so much of this moment where uh, it's something like, I'm paraphrasing, but, but you know, critics talk of theory, artists talk of turpentine. You know, and I think that there's so much to that here, you know, that it's easy for a, quote, revolutionary to sit there and talk about, you know, the plight of man and liberalism and all these things. But like you said, Marsh, who's out there <laughs> the next day on the line with you going, let's get this guy a job, you know? I mean, we don't really have to talk about the just horribly bleak ending of Come Back Africa. You know, uh, viewer, yeah. viewers can just enjoy that for themselves and the sort of element of the film we didn't touch on, which is the Tatsis, right? The gangs of, of South Africa at the time, which are, are yeah. worked into the film. We didn't talk about my favorite character in Comeback Africa, Shorty. Yeah. <laughs> Always chewing, dude. Shorty fucking rocked. I loved Shorty. Yeah, there, I mean, there really are just a lot of really, yeah, just like likable, charismatic characters throughout the film. It really is uh, it's an image war, you know, that these guys were fighting and thought they were fighting in, you know, and going like, 
why don't you guys just like live your life and we'll film it because you know you've heard what they said about you <laughs> you know jesus fucking christ right mm-hmm. so well ryan these were our picks for hybrid cinema so when that comes to mind for you what pops into your pretty little head <laughs> well it's funny because when you picked here and elsewhere and i saw that the film was was 55 minutes it reminded me of the fact that one of my favorite films of all time apart from the fact that it's one of my very favorite hybrid films is a whopping 200 minutes longer than here and elsewhere clocking in at 255 minutes and that is the great robert kramer film route one usa and the concept of this film is it's a documentary road trip along Route 1 from the Canadian border to Key West as a character named Doc is driving down and meeting people along the way. And he visits quote-unquote old friends, he meets new people, he even kind of engages in some medical practice at some points in the film. But the thing that complicates all of this is that he's not a doctor, he's not a real person, it's an actor playing someone named Doc. And you know that from the beginning. And at times you wonder, did they tell the people that he's talking to this? Oftentimes it really doesn't feel like they did, but then there are other times where these real people talk about their past friendships with Doc. And then it becomes confusing because you're like, this is a character, but this person's clearly real and they're jamming and maybe they're just real friends and referring to him as Doc for the purposes of the film. But regardless, it is just this unbelievably gorgeous, super 16 colorful documentary of the East Coast from 1989. It's a film I think about all the time and it's one that I think everyone should see. It is just the way it captures America through this hybrid process is just totally unique. It is its its own object, this film. And I wish he made more for every road in this country. <laughs> and like Godard, it's got that feeling of a, a leftist who is trying to figure out, like, what went wrong, you know? And yeah. that's sort of, like, the, the key tone of the film, you know, like it is in a lot of Godard work, so. But, uh, yeah, so that was me. That was my topic. and. Um, Next week, we're doing something a little bit different. We've got Marsh here is going to be on assignment. So we're going to bring in, we're going to bring in a guest. We're going to shake things up a little bit. And uh, we wish you well, Marsh. Thank you. I'm going to do a lot of reconnaissance for you. Very good. And I, I'm very excited to hear uh, on the podcast about the films you watch on the airplane. Um, because I feel like that's a subject in and of itself. The airplane cinema. Maybe a topic for another week, you know? Airplane movies. I once I once watched Alphaville on the plane to Hawaii on a portable DVD player. Damn. Wow. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Gauntlet Movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Ce film s'appelait Victoire. En 1974, ce film s'appelle Ici et ailleurs. Et ailleurs. Et. En 1970, ce film s'appelait Victoire. En 1974, le 
s'appelle ici et ailleurs. Et ailleurs. Et. Nous avons choisi une révolution palestinienne pour prouver au monde que cette terre palestinienne, que l'ennemi sioniste a prise, nous la rendrons à son peuple, à ses origines premières. Et nous n'arriverons pas à la rendre par les moyens pacifiques. Après avoir perdu l'espoir de le faire par des moyens pacifiques, nous avons entrepris de le faire par la guerre.